Um, I, I don't want to kind of lecture you guys, but I actually I do. You guys are our children. You might not be my biological child, but um, you will be my children's contemporaries. Wherever you end up in life, I have children your age. So wherever you end up in life, you are going to be peers to my children. So essentially, you are my children. And not to mention, you know, the culture that we share that connects us. That's, you know, very important that we link and that we make the connection between people who look like us and between people who come from the same levels of society that we come from. Um, so what I want to talk to you guys today, um, the, the topic was supposed to be about gang culture, and I am going to kind of segue into that a little bit. Uh, but before I, I jump into that, I just want to concentrate on something that I think which kind of leads to, you know, people joining gangs and gang culture. Um, and that is self-worth. Does anybody know what that means? This is interactive. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna lecture you guys. So you are gonna participate. What is self worth? What does that mean? Very good. She said how you identify your worth, basically, um, what you stand for, and how you view yourself, and how you treat other people. And pretty much that's exactly what that means. All right? So let me say that, you know, when we're talking about self-worth, right, um, unfortunately, we are born into a world where standards are already placed on us before we even exit into the world. Standards are already put on us in terms of what someone else decides is successful, what someone else decides is happy, what someone else decides is beauty. Somebody told you what beauty is. And here we are today conforming, changing ourselves, every single thing about us, changing to conform to somebody else's perception of beauty. So rather than you know being content with what God gave you, we add extra hair to our hair, we add extra eyelashes, we, because somebody else told you that was beautiful. That's what's going to make you pop. I'm going to use your language, right? Somebody told you that get into the bag, right? Get into the money is what makes you successful. So you scroll through Instagram. You're seeing all of these rappers. You're seeing all these entertainers talk about get into the bag, get into the money. And in your mind, you believe that that is what success is. That's what makes you happy. That's what makes you, you know, successful. Here again, basing your worth on what somebody else has set, the standards that somebody else has set for you. You guys following me? Rather than what you have set for yourself. So we are born into an environment where, you know, basically we're taught to seek validation through, you know, external means rather than internal qualities. You are who you are, not because of what you wear or where you live or who your parents are. You are who you are because of what's in here. And until you get to that bag, getting to the money bag is really irrelevant because there are tons of people who have money, tons of people who have wealth and are miserable as hell. There are tons of actors, there are tons of people who have money who we identify them as successful people but are miserable enough to commit suicide. 
because they allowed somebody else to determine for them what success is and what happiness is. To many of us, we grew up in families and our parents tell us, go to school, get a good education and marry you know, a good man or a wealthy man or marry a, a, good, a good woman and you're going to be successful. And so you grow up believing that this is what's going to make you successful. This is what's going to make you happy. The whole while you never get to who you are and what makes you happy and what you identify as successful. You guys following me? Am I losing you? Okay. So um, our parents, our immediate environments have superimposed on us, unfortunately, uh, the standards of success and happiness, which are we are expected to just kind of acquiesce, you know, just submit to without question or contest. We're not to question, you know, if you tell your parent, well, I don't necessarily want to go to college. That's not my thing. I want to be an entrepreneur because the fact that I matter and I'm not trying to deter anyone from going to college if that's what you believe is your path. But what I'm saying is that there are a lot of people who go to college only to graduate from college and work for somebody who never been to college. Go figure. So for some people, that's not, that's not going to be their path to happiness and success. So basically, we see ourselves as, as an extension of what other people think we are, in essence. All right, we see ourselves as an extension of the way that the world sees us without being able to self-identify uh, our own independent self um, outside of the impositions that have been placed on us. Um, I'm just, these are just some notes that I wrote as I was on the plane coming here, right? So we become basically the, tum- the, the total sum of someone else's shallow observations of us. Um, and their subsequent uh, you know, perception of us while rendering our own perception of ourselves uh, obsolete and irrelevant. Uh, in the Islamic tradition, this is akin to you know, people who were idol worshippers. And Prophet Muhammad, may peace and blessings be upon him, he emerges amongst these people who are worshipping idols, bowing down to trees, bowing down to stones. And he tells them, like, why are you doing this? These idols cannot help you. They can't benefit you. Why not turn your attention to God? And these are, they're following cultural traditions without using any of their intellect. There are verses in the Quran that, you know, challenge people to use their intellect. Allah says in the Quran, God says in the Quran that he is the one who created man, brought him forth from the womb of his mother, not knowing anything. And then he bestowed upon you sight, hearing, and understanding so that perhaps you may arrive at a place where you will be grateful to God that you are able to actualize and utilize those faculties that he gave you. But some people just are, you know, content with blind following. Whatever someone hands to you, that's the role that you have to accept. And we don't challenge anything. And I'm, I'm leading, I'm taking this, I'm leading up to the whole gang culture thing because I don't want to attack gang culture and tell you gang culture is this and gang culture is that. And you can end up in jail because most of that you guys are already familiar with that. And the fact of the matter is all the tough guys who join gangs got it all figured out until the judge bangs the gavel and tell you you got life in prison. And then you'd be the same one in your cell thinking about thoughts of suicide now, ready to hang yourself because you can't you can't imagine spending the rest of the duration of your life behind a prison cell locked in a room with another guy on a top bunk. You're sharing a toilet, and that's your reality. Everybody got it all figured out until the judge bangs the gavel, and that's your life. 
I was in prison with guys. Wallahi, I remember sitting at the lunchroom table. I, I just got there. I didn't realize how serious this was for some people. I only had 10 years, so it wasn't really that bad, right? Yeah. I met people in my life who can do 10 years standing on their head. It means nothing to them because they're about that life. I'm sitting at the lunch table with a guy. It was like five of us sitting at the lunch table, and we're all talking about how much time we got. So there's a big guy sitting at the table, and we're like, yeah. One guy's like, yeah, I'm going home after 10 years. I'm going home after seven and so we get to the other guy and we're like, you know, how long you got? And he just looked. And the guy elbowed me. I was like, yo, he got life, man. Like, and that was the first time I had seen the look on somebody's face who realizes that he's going to spend the entire, the rest, the entirety of his life in prison. He will never come home. No eligibility for parole. And when he tapped me and I looked at this guy's face, you could just see on his face just complete self-defeat. I have nothing to live for. And so while you, you know, guys are out in the streets and you think that that's cool, you got it all figured out until, you know, look at every individual, every tough guy who carries a gun, who's, you know, going to jail for, none of those guys are as tough when they're standing in front of the judge receiving their life sentence as they are when they're on the streets with a gun in their hand. You'll see them cry, you'll see them break down. This is the other side of gangsterism you don't see. All these tough guys with the tattoos and all these tough guys with the braids, all these tough guys, this is the other side of that that you don't see. How they break down in the courtroom after the judge says life with no, you know, eligibility for parole. That's the other side of it that you don't see. And God forbid that they have children, that the children will have to become comfortable seeing their father in an orange jumpsuit or a brown or beige suit for the rest of their lives. But that all started with a lack of self-worth. Not knowing who you are, allowing somebody else to tell you who you are and to what extent you are important. Nobody should be able to define you better than you. You don't get to tell me who I am. Oh, you a tough guy or you're this or you're that. No, I'm, I don't need you to tell. I don't need you to validate that for me. Self-validation, self-actualization. There's nothing more powerful than that. And, you know, just let me breeze along for a little bit, right? So humans are, you know, communal creatures who seek connection with one another through social and peer acceptance. You guys right now, where you are, a lot of you require peer acceptance. As you get older, you get to a point in your life where you really don't care what other people think about you. Many of you are not there yet. Some of you are. And you don't care what another person thinks. You have self-actualized. You know what is important to you. You know who you are. And you don't allow somebody else to define who you are based upon their standards. Some of you are there. The majority of you, I'm almost positive, are not there. You still base your entire life on social and peer acceptance. Otherwise, you wouldn't feel the need to walk with a group, to walk with a crowd. You can walk on your own and not feel any type of way. One of the prophets in the Quran, Prophet Abraham, we know him as Prophet Ibrahim. 
He was called by God, a ummah, a nation, by himself. This was a man who was not afraid to go against the grain. Not afraid to do something different than what everybody else is doing. Not afraid to walk, you know, alone by themselves. So as, you know, human beings, we are communal creatures. You know, we seek connection with other people through, you know, social and peer acceptance. This is a factor that is relevant during, you know, your adolescent years until you get to your adulthood years. And then there's still many adults who still require, you know, peer acceptance. There's still many adults because they didn't get the acceptance in childhood. So they carry, with that, they carry that with them into adulthood and they're still as adults seeking acceptance from other peers. But those who, got, who understood that growing up, as they get older, the older and older you get, the less and less you care about acceptance. All right? Um, on one occasion, a guy came to Prophet Muhammad and he said, um, guide me to an action that will make God love me and that will make people love me. He said, stay away from the things that God hates and God will love you and stay away from the things that people love and people will love you. Sound beautiful advice. Don't you know, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the 48 laws of power. You, you familiar with that book? Uh, raise your hands if you're familiar with that book. OK, you guys should be familiar with that book. Avid readers should be familiar with that book. 48 laws of power. Um, and one of the, I believe it's like this first or second law is, you know, never challenge the authority of the person that is over you. You don't, you don't want to be in a competition with someone else. Be great in your own lane. You don't have to be in competition with someone else. You ever look around and see that somebody's in competition with you and you're like, I, I wasn't even in competition with you. Like, oh, you went and got those and I'm going to go get this and you got that. And it's like, I'm not in competition with you. I'm in competition with myself. I didn't even know this was a thing. Like you, like you have people that are secretly in competition with you. And you're sitting here thinking to yourself, like, I didn't even know it was a thing. But I'm, by the way, I'm not in competition with you. I'm in competition with myself. I'm being great in my own lane. But you don't want to you know, challenge you know, the things that other people consider important to them because now you bring on jealousy, envy, you put yourself in, in harm's way unnecessarily. So he said, you know, stay away from the things that God loves and God will love you and stay away from the things that people covet, the, the things that people love and people will love you. When I know that I'm not in competition with you, I'm comfortable being around you. You understand? You guys follow me? These are jewels, man. These are jewels. You can create a necklace out of them. So the point that I'm making is that, you know, um, with close observation, you will look at his comment. He said, direct me to something that if I do it, God will love me and people will love me. So there's still it's natural to have this, you know, peer acceptance, social acceptance. But given the absence of, you know, deep expressions of love. All right. In many households today, whereby children feel whole, feel valid. Um, the need and the desire for social acceptance and substantiation has increased dramatically. This has allowed social media apps like, you know, Instagram and other social media sites to capitalize off of our vulnerability. So because we're not being shown love at home 
or the expressions of love at home are not as effective enough to make us feel valid and feel whole. We feel the need to go outside of the home and get validation from other people. Don't you know that the dopamine levels in the human being when you checking your phone, checking your Instagram page for likes is almost like you are addicted to cocaine? Dopamine is a type of chemical that your body produces. It's called the feel-good chemical. You understand? And you're constantly checking to see how many people liked it, how many people shared it. It's almost like you're high. It's a drug. And you are do more and more and more because you want more attention. Because you are deriving your validation based upon likes and reposts, retweets of complete strangers. These people don't know you. If you die tomorrow, you're 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 followers. I think I have like almost 13,000 followers on Instagram. How many of those followers you think going to show up at my funeral tomorrow if I died today? Not even a fraction. Not even a fraction. So why would I base my worth as a human being on something so superficial as likes and retweets, and many of you guys do it. Many of you guys will sell your soul, meaning you will do things that go against your morals and your values just to get a like, just to get a retweet, just to get a repost. And in some instances, friends will become enemies to one another because I shared something and you didn't like it. I shared something and you didn't repost it. So we are now not friends anymore because I, well, you like so-and-so's page or you like this person's pick, but you didn't like mine's. So we're now enemies over liking a pick. There's no greater invalidation of an individual than that because that's where you get your validation from. You guys following me? Am I, am I making sense? Yes. I don't want to ask, is there anybody in here that I don't want you to self-disclose, but I really want you to take a deeper look at yourself and look at what social media is doing to us. If it's validation that you are seeking, then you need to give yourself that validation. Self-validate. I know I'm somebody. I know I'm valuable. I know that I am worth something. Whether somebody else sees it or not is irrelevant because I don't derive my self-worth based upon what other people think. It's about what I think. What do you think about you? You know that many people who are sitting in jail right now being involved in gangs, 99% of them in many instances did not want to pull the trigger. They didn't want to do it. But they had somebody else telling them, yo, you that dude, you that guy, you this, you're that. And they're basing their worth off of what somebody else is feeding them. And when do they finally realize that the person that they became is not who they wanted to become? Huh? When you, when you sit in, when you got 25 years and you got 30 years and then you start reading books, going to the law library and you start to self-actualize. Then you realize I'm not that person. But by then it's too late. It's not necessarily too late because... At least you can die with some dignity in prison <laughs> for whatever that's worth. You can die with dignity in prison because some of the same people that you were running with, you're going to meet up with each other, right? As Tupac said, we got us all meeting up in prison. That's, that's where we meet up at. 
But you're going to run into them again, and then you'll have another opportunity to confront them with self-actualization at this point. Because they're going to run into you and think you're still that guy, and now you have an opportunity to look the person in the face and say, I was never that person. I was just too much of a coward to tell you that when we were on the streets. But now I've actualized who I really am, and I can tell you I'm not that person. When I first converted to Islam, you can't imagine how many people I had to confront because they still want to pull you back into that. Oh, when you're going home, you're getting back in the game? Nah, that's not me. Oh, come on, man. You know, uh, nah, that's not me. I had to be able to stand on my own two feet. And I can tell you there's nothing that is more powerful than that. I reclaimed my autonomy. What do I mean when I say that? I reclaimed my autonomy. What do I mean when I say that? What is autonomy? Huh? Mm. Huh? Your passion? Mm -mm. Freedom of thought. It's the... Freedom to be who you are. Freedom to control your life. You're autonomous. There's, there's two people that will never learn anything. There's a person who thinks he knows everything and a person who is afraid to learn. Don't be afraid. We're, we're in a learning environment. I am a teacher. So we're in, I'm always a teacher. We're in a learning environment. So don't be afraid to raise your hand and say the wrong answer. You're going to learn. You're going to learn. Even when you're wrong, you're going to learn. All right, so this has allowed social media to capitalize off our vulnerability and, in essence, our incessant desire for validation outside of ourselves. There's nothing that is more powerful for a man or a woman, boy or girl, than to have the love of your parents. Does everybody in here have the love of their parents? Raise your hand in here. No, I, want you, I don't want you. I want those who your parents don't tell you on a regular basis they love you. The parents don't embrace you. No, raise your hand. No, raise your hand. Raise your hand. Your parents don't tell you on a regular basis that they love you. They don't embrace you. Uh, teachers, I want you guys to look at the hands that's up because that's our job. That now becomes our job. I struck a nerve because I hear a lot of talking now. So if you don't hear that, if you don't hear that at home, uh, let me be the first to tell you that I love you. Let me be the first to tell you that I love you. Because my father never told me he loved me either. And I was probably the first one to tell my father that before he told me that. And my father said to me at 60-something years old, he said, my father never told me I love you. I said, well, we're going to break that cycle right now. I said, I love you. And I was the first one to say it to him. You understand? You got to break that cycle. And as a people, you know, we thrive. We thrive. We become our best selves when we know that we're in an environment where there's security, where there's love, where there's respect. 
we thrive in those type of environments. But when I'm always watching over myself, there's no security, there's no love. Like, what type of people are we producing? What type of children are we creating when these are the type of environments that... And I mean, like, you think about America and all the crime that you see going on in those environments. You think those children in those environments are being shown love at home? Absolutely not. Love produces love, and toxicity produces toxicity. And that's a fact. When you grow up in a toxic environment, you become toxic in most instances. There are some exceptions to the rule, but for the majority. You ever go and try to plant something in, in dirt that's not fertile? Is anything going to grow? Even if it does grow, it's not healthy. And so essentially we are products of our environment. So if nobody ever told you that they loved you, it may not mean anything to you, but it damn sure means something to me. I love you. And I pray that at some point in your life, you get to the point in your life where you begin to exact, you know, self-actualize. Identify your worth through who you are, not through what somebody else tells you who you are. Not the standards that have been set for you. That, those are your standards, not my standards. That's what's going to make you happy, not necessarily what's going to make me happy. That's what you believe success is. Getting a good job, working a good job, and then spending your entire life away from your children eight hours a day, ten hours a day. And you believe that's your definition of success? For me, working in a capacity where I enjoy working, that for me is success. Because it's not work. When I get up and I go to a job doing what I love doing, that's not work. I'm just doing what I love doing. And I get paid for it. <laughs> For me, that's success. Getting up, working, you know, a job, nine to five, however many hours you work, away from your family, away from your children, and then at 60, 70 years old, you have to retire, but by then all of your children are grown, you missed out on most of their lives. To me, that's not a sign of success. I'm sorry. But we are born into an environment where the standard, that's the standard of success. And you guys have an opportunity to change that narrative. And you are changing that narrative. Look at how many entrepreneurs, you know, have been created through, you know, mediums like Facebook, like, you know, um, Instagram. People have become millionaires off of these apps because they found they know how to crack the code. They found the code and they cracked it. There's a young boy from um, uh, Philadelphia, young kid, like 12, 13 years old, um, Spurgo. You guys heard of that? This young guy, he created a t-shirts and all of this stuff. Million dollar business. Young African-American boy. Created a whole business off of social media. He didn't have to. He's still in school, and yet he's a businessman, entrepreneur. Don't let social media use you. Use it. Don't let people use you, you know, and superimpose on you their definitions of who you are. Right? And if you know someone who is involved in gang activity, you know, have a conversation with them. That's not you. That's not the person that you are. If you really love the person, you wouldn't encourage the behavior that they are engaged in. All right. You guys have been great. I'm sorry I, had, I bored you for the past 30 minutes, 45 minutes. Um, <laughs> Because I know, I know when I was a teenager, I didn't really want to hear this stuff either. It's like, yeah, whatever. But um, as an adult, I now realize that I have a responsibility. Do you guys have any questions?
for me. You have any questions? Yeah. Shoot. Oh, that's a long story. <laughs> she said, how did I get a 10-year sentence? Well, the sentence was 10 years. I only did five because in certain states in America, like New Jersey, you only do a fraction or portion uh, of your time. So while it was 10 years maximum, that's the maximum amount that I could have done, I, I only did end up doing five. And that was from the time that I was 17, uh, from the time I was 18 until the time I was 24. I'm trying to avoid your question. That, that was, you know, in politics, they just kind of, you know, it's the old DC shuffle. <laughs> it was, it was, it was some behaviors that I was involved in that I shouldn't have been. Nah, I'm not the type to join a gang. I can stand on my own feet. I can fight. I'm good. I don't, I don't need to join a gang. Trust me, I'm good. No, I, I, gang activity was, first of all, it wasn't like the Bloods and Crips. And, you know, when I was a teenager, we're talking about like 93. Like most of you guys weren't even born yet. Um, when I was a teenager in my environment, like Bloods and Crips, it wasn't popular during that time. That was more so West Coast stuff. That didn't come to the East Coast until like 96, nine, end of 96, 97. Then it started popping up. You started seeing it in New York, New Jersey. You started seeing it in certain areas on the East Coast. But it wasn't really popular when I, when I was a kid. We more so were like streets. Like if you're from 21st Street, you're from this street, you're from that street, you're from this block, you're from that block. That was, that was pretty much how it went. There will be a three-dollar it is of So, no, it wasn't necessarily gang activity. I, I, was, I was never involved in that. Um, yes? Say it again? Did I steal something? I wouldn't ask you. Ask me something that really matters. <laughs> Go ahead. Finish school. Say it again. Finish school. Did I finish school? Absolutely. I actually got my high school diploma in prison. <laughs> Believe it or not. And then I left prison and I got accepted into the Islamic University of Medina. So you can you can see, you know, God had a plan for me. It was just for me to wake up and see what the plan was and, and get on track. So yeah, I did finish school. Beyond. You saw any prison fights? Say it again. You saw any prison fights? Take the mic from him, man. <laughs> Just hit the. Go ahead. I'm listening. No, no, no. Keep going. It's still on. What made me choose a religion? Uh, the religion of Islam. Okay, so I'm going to give you the short version. Some of you. How many of you guys are Christians? 
Okay, almost all of you. Okay, I'm going to say something. I don't, I'm not trying to shake your faith, but I want you to follow me. I want you to listen with an open mind. I came to the realization at a very young age that one of the most psychologically and spiritually debilitating concepts is for me to be born into a world and my whole worth is based upon the mistake of another human being. Basically, we are all born in sin. I just could not, for the life of me, I could not understand why my entire life as a human being and my relationship with God has to be completely defined by an, another person's mistake. Why am I born in sin? Because of the mistake of Adam? Adam ate from the tree? Adam sinned? What does that have to do with me? And so now somehow I am invalid and I got to go through Jesus, another man, to get to God for the life of me. Even as an 11 year old kid, which was the time that I decided I was not going to go back to church anymore. I could not figure for the life of me why I had to accept that. It just did not make sense to me. And to this day, it still doesn't make sense to me. I have to I'm born in sin. And in, in Islam, we're taught that Adam, when he ate from the tree, he sinned. He also asked God for forgiveness. And so, therefore, the Islamic concept is that children are not born in sin. Children are born in the repentance of Adam, free from sin, to approach God by themselves, without any middle person, without any intermediary. That made sense to me. That was the number one factor about Islam that made sense to me. And I said, you know what? That is how I felt my entire life. And so, therefore... This whole concept of being born in another man's sin. And then there's actually a verse in the Quran where Allah says that the, no bearer of burden should bear the burden of another. That, that would make God oppressive. That he would charge me, an innocent baby. You're telling me this baby here born in sin of a mistake of a man that was made millions of years ago. You know, like it, it just it's not fair to that child to have a direct con connection to God. But. They got to go through another human being. So God sent his only begotten son and you know the whole story. So now you got to go through Jesus. In Jesus' name you pray. In Jesus' name you do this because you got to go through him to get to God. I just, that just didn't sit with me. And so the Islamic concept is that Adam repented. He asked God for forgiveness. And so therefore, when you ask God for forgiveness, we like to believe that he forgives us. So that means that there, your, your sin is wiped away. So we are born in the repentance of Adam, not the sin. And so, therefore, we're not born in sin, and we do not need to go through another human being, whether it's Muhammad, whether it's Jesus, whether it's Moses. We don't need to go through another person to get to God. I can raise my hands. I can talk to God directly, which is something that I used to do very occasionally, very frequently, once I decided that I didn't want to go to church. Deciding not to go to church doesn't mean I don't believe in God. It just means I don't believe in the Christian concept of God. But I continued my relationship with God all the way up until the time that I was introduced to Islam. That was a relevant question. So you can tell a lot about a person. Another question is, how did you view life? You sit down. You ain't got to stand up. You're good. Well, how did you view life before you went to prison and then after you spent your 10 years thinking and reflecting? Five, five, maybe five years over time? Well, I mean, the, the thing about it is that I, I grew up, I didn't grow up with my parents. So I grew up in a foster home. 
And so, um, is there anyone here that's in a foster home or being raised with someone that is not their parents? Don't feel, don't feel bad. Don't understand something. Everything that you are going through right now is going to prepare you to who you're going to become. I would not be who I am right now had I not gone through that. Um, at the time, I was ashamed. You know, you're in school and people's parents come in and then, you know, your foster parent come in and people looking at you, looking at your parents. That's like, that's not your mom. It's like, now, the, okay, the cat's out the bag. I'm, I'm in a foster home. It's like now, and when I grew up, you know, you were teased about things like that. Oh, your mom is addicted to drugs. No, kids can be very insensitive. And so I was embarrassed for many years about that. But look at me now. You understand? I'm talking about in terms of my confidence. And I wouldn't have that had I not gone through that. So, yeah, at the time that you go through it, it's very painful. You're trying to figure out a lot of things. You know, you're living in a world, a society, your peers. It looks like everybody, and believe it or not, everybody's not happy. Both people who got both of their parents in their homes. I mean, later on, I would figure that out. But at the time, you're looking at, I had a friend with his mom, his dad. They live in a nice house. And I, and I always just say, Dad, I wish I had that. But um, if I had that, I probably wouldn't have been the person that I am now. Different strokes for different folks. And while I was mad at God for many years... Because I didn't understand why. I wasn't making the connections. Why? What did I do to deserve this? I hate you. Like These, these are conversations that I used to have with God. I hate you. I, I, I wish I was never born. I don't deserve this. What did I do? And so to your question, I used to walk around with a chip on my shoulder. I was mad at the world and everybody in it. I felt like everybody owed me. My teachers, my foster parents. Everybody that I came in contact with, I felt like I was done an injustice and then the world owes me. And then later on, you come to realize is that the world is not going to give you anything. Anything you're going to get from the world, you're going to take it. You understand? The world is a, is a rough place. People are not going to give you respect. You're going to take it. I'm not asking, well, you earn it. And in some instances, you got to take it because some people just don't understand you know, that mutual interaction, right? <laughs> but you, got, you have to demand it. People are not going to give you anything. And so while you walk around feeling sorry for yourself, while you're walking around carrying the weight of the world on your shoulders, eventually you get to a point where you realize that that is not helping you and that you have to take a different approach. Einstein said doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result is what? It's insanity. So if you're walking around with this chip on your shoulder and you believe in that the world and you keep getting in trouble, getting in trouble, getting in trouble, and it's not serving you well, then at some point you got to change. You got to re-strategize. You got to change your thinking. So to your point, yes, I, 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 the way that I viewed the world was like any kid that grew up in that type of environment, trying to figure out why your parents don't love you, why you never met your father, you know, why your mom is on drugs, why, you know, this, why that. You have just so many questions in your head. And the moment you stop feeling sorry for yourself, the moment you stop waiting for the world to give you a one-way ticket to happiness, you start to kind of realize that, all right, people, we're complex. We're human beings. We're complex. And then when you start doing your history, you realize what happened to the black community in the 70s. You know, crack was pushed into our communities in the late 70s, early 80s. You know, a lot of our parents were addicted to drugs. It's not that they're just crackheads or dope fiends. These, these, are, these are parents. 
mothers, fathers who just so happened to be going through hard times and turned to crack, turned to drugs as a way to escape and didn't realize that this drug was manufactured by the government, the same government that pushed it into the community and then turned around and said, we're going to do a war on drugs. And a war on drugs was a war on the black family. You understand? We live in an environment where our entire government was plotting against us, running their entire political campaigns off of our pain. And they still do it. They still do it. It's not the one last question. I didn't want to do anything. Like, what did you do when you sat back in your life? Like, how did you do with like major setbacks in your life? How do you, he said, how do you deal with um, major setbacks and obstacles in your life? Number one is lower your expectation. <laughs> obstacles and challenges are necessary. As they say, struggle builds character. You don't know who you are until you're tested. This is why we give you a final exam. We, we, we want to know where you're at. You know, at the end of the semester, we want to give you a final exam and assessment because we want to know exactly where you are. And we want you to know where you are because it's humbling to get a final access assessment. You're believing that you're, you know, an A plus student and then you receive your final assessment at the end and you realize you're not. You're not that guy. You're not that girl. It's humbling. So it actually lets you know who you are and where you really stand. Trials and tribulations and obstacles in your life do the same exact thing. They let you know where you are. We like to think that, you know, I got it all figured out until you get tested with something and you realize I really don't have it figured out. You know, absolutely. Yeah. Peace on you, my brother. Thank you. you. Um, I believe the is your wife and your child. Yes. That's a blessing. Just what you do, do you ever, do you ever make a pilgrimage to Mecca, to Africa, to places where the Islamic religion is practiced more freely and stronger? Do you ever do you think about doing it or have you ever done that? Uh, he's, his question was, um, have I ever um, gone to places like uh, Arabia or Africa, places in the world where, you know, the religion of Islam is, you know, probably more dominant in practice, you know, at, at greater, greater levels of intensity. Have I been to those places? Yeah, absolutely. I used to live in, in Saudi Arabia. I lived there for almost 10 years of my life. Yeah. Uh, I'm fluent in Arabic. Uh, I'm fluent pretty much in Arab culture, at least in that region anyway. So, yes, the, the university that I went to was in Saudi Arabia. Um, and I spent, you know, a little over six years in the university learning Arabic and then learning other sciences of Islam. So, yeah, I have. I have. And, and that's another thing that, huh? You reside in America now? Yes, yes. I, I'm, I graduated in, like, 2007. Uh, I went back and I used to teach in a university there, King Saud University. I taught there for a year. And then I came back in 2010. And I've been back since then. I haven't gone back since then. Yeah. I've made pilgrimage. I've made hajj many times. Umrah, hajj. Yeah. yeah. You guys have been great. May Allah bless you all. On behalf of the Barclay, on behalf of the, so on behalf of the Barclay Institute and Ms. Edmund Speed and Ms. Morrissey, I would like to thank you for coming and speaking with us today.
My pleasure. Thank of you course. for inviting me. Of course. Anytime. Is that for me? I thought she was getting ready to walk away with yeah, it. I'm I like, hey, you think that? <laughs> you guys have been great, man. I, I, I really appreciate, you know, your, your attention. I, I know with social media, it's very hard to keep you guys attentive. Uh, but you guys paid attention. You answered questions. And hopefully that's a good sign, man. You guys, uh, listen. When I got off the plane and I saw what this island looked like when I got off the plane, you guys live literally in paradise. You don't, you don't, you know, my wife, she's from Brooklyn. She grew up in Marcy Projects, the same projects where Jay-Z is from. Like, you, you guys don't have that. You know what I mean? Like, stop importing America's garbage into your society. That's, it's not necessary. If you want to be tough, Go to America and be tough. We're all the tough. Because they got a place for tough guys. They got a place for tough guys. Tough should only be necessary when your life is in danger, your family's life is in danger. That's a necessary toughness. Other than that, you know, like you guys, God has literally blessed you guys to grow up in an environment that many people would, would love to live in this environment. Would love to live in this environment. You live here every day, so you might look at it as, you know, it's not that, it's not that great. But coming from environments where we come from and getting off the plane and looking at the water, just the water, man. Like, <laughs> we don't have that luxury. I came here with a heavy jacket. I'm, I'm sitting here sweating right now. So, you know, be grateful. You know, be grateful for the blessings that you have, man. You don't have it all. You know what I mean? Like nobody does. Nobody does. We, none, of, none of us have it all. God always leaves just a little bit of room for struggle in your life. Because that little bit of room for struggle is the, the antidote that you need. It is the medicine that you need to become who you're going to become. Struggle builds character. Keep that in, your, in, in mind. All right? You guys have been great. Thank you. Thank you.